Welcome to Great Plains Anywhere, a Paul A. Olson lecture from the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. For this episode of Great Plains Anywhere, we're sharing a portion of an interview from a multimedia project called Reconciliation Rising, which showcases the lives and work of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people who are engaged in creating pathways toward reconciliation by confronting painful histories and promoting meaningful dialogue. On behalf of the Center for Great Plains Studies, I would like to begin by acknowledging that the University of Nebraska is a land-grant institution with campuses and programs on the past, present, and future homelands of the Pawnee, Ponca, Oto, Missouri, Omaha, Lakota, Dakota, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Kaw peoples, as well as the relocated Ho-Chunk, Iowa, and Sac and Fox peoples. Please take a moment to consider the legacies of more than 150 years of displacement, violence, settlement, and survival that bring us here today. This acknowledgement and the centering of Indigenous peoples is a start as we move forward together for the next 150 years. Reconciliation Rising is funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and brought to you by Kevin Aberesk, Margaret Jacobs, and Belir Ben-Taleb. Deb Echohawk is the keeper of the seeds for the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. Ronnie O'Brien is a passionate gardener and former manager of the Great Platte River Road Archway Monument in Kearney, Nebraska. In part one of our interview with them, learn what brought them together to create the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project, a thriving program in which Pawnees and Nebraska settlers are growing corn together in dozens of gardens throughout Nebraska. Hi, my name is Deb Echohawk, Joshua Hukuts, and I'm from the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. Hi, I'm Ronnie O'Brien, Shelton, Nebraska. Oh, and my name is Adati Natiski-Lipotsky, my sister. So we just uh, wanted to start by, um, if you would each tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, of, you know, where you grew up, that kind of thing, a little bit about your, your family's background, things like that. Well, I was born in Pawnee, Oklahoma. That's where I presently live. Um, and uh, love living in Pawnee and being around the Pawnee Nation. And uh, as a youngster, um, my parents uh, were in Oklahoma and my dad um, he supported our family as best he could and and when shooting pool wasn't making all the bills he joined the military and so we grew up uh, traveling around the world seems like and um, my dad was always very keen about making sure that we made it back for ceremonies and understood our traditions. And um, he died at a very young age, but he did leave a lot of notes, and uh, which are notes that I have referred to in talking about our mother corn and um, things that I didn't realize that he felt were important at the time um, would end up ruling my life, so I'm I'm thankful for um, that time and 
and all the um, times that I was able to spend with our, our traditional people. I'm Ronnie O'Brien. I'm from central Nebraska, uh, born and raised in central Nebraska, youngest of four kids in my family. Grew up on a corn farm uh, by St. Labore, Nebraska. Um, so grew up a farm kid. We worked hard, uh, always outside. Uh, my mom always made huge meals because we were always hungry because we worked so hard. Uh, so the, um, I guess, farming, with a farming background, although I, I left the farm and never uh, was on a, a farm again, um, that doesn't leave you. It stays with you. And uh, when I met Deb uh, because of my job and wanting to start a program about the Pawnee, uh, I had read Jean Waltfish's uh, book about the Pawnee, the Lost Universe, and I knew they had a lot of different varieties of corn and it was sacred to them. So I wanted to have the Pawnee help me start a program. So, uh, and I wanted to have a garden as part of it because my mom was a big gardener and we all grew up gardening. Uh, all four of us still garden. So uh, I wanted to have a garden as part of a school program and contacted the Pawnee Nation and took three attempts to find someone that they thought I could talk to. So uh, I really never intended to grow corn again. I grew up in carrying irrigation pipes and I was done with that. <laughs> but um, that background, my very beginning, my earliest background is what has come back, you know, and, and uh, surprisingly to me, been the thing that has led me to uh, be able to help the Pawnee. So one of the things we wanted to ask you about, just for the background of our listeners, is um, where did the Pawnee used to live, and how did they end up in Oklahoma? Well, okay, so the Pawnees were from creation story. We would say that um, that we were always a people of Nebraska. Um, and we have uh, four bands of the Pawnee and they took over the areas of Nebraska and Kansas predominantly. However, going into Colorado was, was not unusual at all. Um, especially to go up into to the mountains to get certain plants. Um, so the, I, it, it's hard to say how many hundreds of years that we were in Nebraska lands and under those night skies. Um, but we were there uh, until the 1870s and when we moved uh, to Oklahoma and so we're presently in um, Pawnee County which is not very far from Tulsa and um, we we have a, a lot going on in Pawnee Oklahoma right now you know we, we love being there um, but 
we do love the homeland and so maintaining homeland ties has always been real important for us. You mentioned that on Lapani where they moved to Oklahoma was that something that wasn't completely up to you to do that? But. No it wasn't. Um, we had uh, actually acquired a, a pretty good relationship with the settlers, the homesteaders. Um, I guess back in the day you know mostly Irish folks were the ones that we uh, were neighbors with and, and became good friends. Um, there was a lot of different pressures when we were um, in Nebraska. The 1860s and 70s we started feeling pressure from other tribes relocating and trying to you know being pushed west and uh, as much as we wanted to defend our land it was very hard. Um, and the intertribal ways were not friendly um, for the most part. And so when we had a chance to um, join the army and be Pawnee Scouts, uh, that's something that a lot of our men did uh, willingly to try again to defend their homeland. Um, but uh, we that that really did not last very long, and uh, the relocation was a forced one. Um, we had a huge population that suffered, and like many tribes, we have our own trail of tears stories where um, you know we had over ten thousand people strong, and by the time we got to Oklahoma settled and had our first count there was 600 plus and so yes it was a very very sad time and detrimental to a lot of our ceremonies and uh, traditional ways that we had were lost by the wayside. Um, when the Pawnee were in Nebraska were they um, a farming based society or were they more hunting based I guess? both. Um, agriculture was huge with them and I love to remind Nebraskans that we were the first corn huskers. <laughs> 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 but yes, I mean, uh, we. it was part of our creation story. It was part of our, our every year cycle was, was in, in caring and preparing it for um, the garden season and then of course uh, all the food storage that we had to do to sustain ourselves um, we did it you know we were able to do so and but yes hunting was also part of what we did and, and following the herds we you know had to do that to get all the protein from the buffalo and and add that to our our mainly um, vegetative life you know I mean, we, we um, ate a lot of the plants and you know that we had and it was it was our main diet more so than meat um, from reading the article you two wrote I, I learned that um, you and your family got really interested in, in Pawnee farming practices um, and how, how did that happen 
at what point in your life did you start to get really interested in that? <laughs> well, in the 80s, uh, we had my brother, Walter Echohawk, had uh, received some seeds from Diana Henry. And they were um, seeds that she had acquired out of a Kansas museum. And she said they were pretty well tucked away in a basement. And so she felt like it was important to see if the Pawnees wanted them back. So she had given some to my brother. At the time, we were living in Colorado, in Boulder. And so, um, we started to uh, grow out the seed, and it was eagle corn uh, that she had given us. My older brother grew it uh, around Lyons, Colorado. My younger brother grew his in Longmont, and I was in Boulder. Um, my younger brother ate all his. Um, yeah, and, <laughs> it, it, and he said it was beautiful and wonderful uh, the raccoons and deer um, made use of my oldest brother's garden <laughs> and when I felt like it was ready I called my oldest brother and said hey you know let's go ahead and I can fix some up for us and he said no Deb you better hang on to those seeds because this is our tribes and, and uh, um, we don't know if they have any or not, you know, so just hang on to them. And that's what I did. So was Diana, did you say Diana Henry? Yes. Was she a, a Pawnee descent or a No, she uh, actually was working with the Kansas Historical Society mm -hmm. and and had done some work in, at, uh, I think, you know, with the Republic Museum and some others. and. Um, yeah, she just uh, helped herself to those seeds, which I don't know how uh, kosher that is, but <laughs> but yeah, so it it it, it was uh, Diana's effort that really inspired us to get us going. Did you find other uh, traditional seeds as you went along? When I, in 1997, I moved to Pawnee, Oklahoma, and that's when my cousin Alice and I uh, went around to different elders and said, hey, you know, we're people of the corn, we're people of the buffalo, where's all the corn? And because um, when you read any kind of story or books about the Pawnees that was that's what they had always talked about um, and we got the help of the culture committee at the time uh, to ask the same question do you have any of these seeds the families and they did they started turning them in to, to me um, the Nasharo chief got on board with the project and made me the keeper of the seeds. And um, we just started collecting them from, from families and some had them seeds in sacred bundles. We'd wait three years or so 
before they would open them and there'd only be a little handful of seeds there um, so we we didn't start out with very much <clears throat> some of the families that had corn kept it in um, terrible condition they would put it out in a tin can and put it in their garden shed and Oklahoma has been known to have many days of over 100 degrees and so the corn really wasn't viable so you know we just kept trying and trying to figure out how to bring back all the corn so in when we had work um, let's see that in 1998 <clears throat> we had uh, three varieties of our corn that were given to us and uh, we had a elder Nora Pratt a beautiful Pawnee woman she was very elderly at the, that time but she remembered all of our corn um, and talked about it we asked her to please bless these seeds and so we laid out a blanket on the lawn and she sat down and, and held the seeds in her hand and started praying and about an hour and a half later she was finished praying and it's really that prayer alone where she uh, had talked about the seeds and hoped that one day our people will eat it and enjoy the, the food of our ancestors again that started the project. Maybe turning to, to you, Ronnie, for a little mm -hmm. bit, um, you already mentioned a little bit about how you met Deb, um, but backing up just a bit, how did you come to work at the Archway, and um, how did you eventually make these connections with the Pawnees and with Deb? Well, I always loved Nebraska history. I grew up on my dad's knee listening to him read James Seals' History of Nebraska. Uh, where most kids were re little kids were reading little other other little children's <laughs> stories I was hearing the history of Nebraska uh, and uh, I grew up in an area where the Pawnee were and there are several sites yet uh, not too far away from where I grew up that my I, my dad would take us there and uh, you know and he would uh, it's, it's funny, but this this is this is really how I really got interested. Was my we would drive down the gravel road from our farm, and Dad would point toward the big pasture hill, and he'd say, "Indians." We go, "Where?" And he say, "Just went over the hill." <laughs> and I was the youngest, and I was and everybody else would look forward, and I was still looking. I really thought they were there. I really thought. I mean, he never said what tribe it was, you know, he didn't go into that. But I always felt from a young time that this is native land because of that connection going back to that time. And really, oh, I missed them every time, you know, it just went over the hill. So uh, always had the interest. And when I heard that the archway was going to be opening, I had a degree in business management. I was managing hotels. and. Um, loved managing people and when I heard this Great Platte River Road Archway was going to be opening somewhere in Nebraska I thought oh too bad it won't be near me because I would love to work there and then when I found out it was going to be in Kearney I was like I have to get there because that would bring my business degree together with my love of history and I really wanted to be there so 
I didn't care if I was scrubbing floors. Uh, when it opened, that's what I wanted to do. So I was fortunate to be one of the first two people hired, actually, to open it. So, What year did it open? 2000. Okay. 2000. So it wasn't very long after we opened, and people would uh, come and find me that worked for me and say, somebody wants to talk to the manager. And it would be someone who's native. And they would say, you know, you're doing a great job of telling the history of all the trails and all the transportation routes, but you're missing about a thousand years. <laughs> I was like, well, yes. And my husband's grandfather um, lived to be almost a hundred. And my husband's Irish ancestors settled along the Wood River nine miles from where we live. And his grandpa would start coming and telling me all of these stories about uh, the O'Briens, and my husband's a fifth-generation Union Pacific employee, so I was trying to gather the history of the Union Pacific family, and he kept switching to the stories of a Pawnee chief that the uh, O'Briens knew that really saved their lives the first winter they were there, and uh, many blankets is what they called him, and he was a chief. So I became very interested in that, did a lot of research in our area, found where he encamped, all kinds of things, because Grandpa O'Brien knew. He lived with his grandparents in the summer that settled there in 1861, so he could show me where the chief brought his tribe on hunting excursions. So that was really cool. Uh, so when I had natives saying to me, you know, you're, you're missing a thousand years, and then I had fourth grade teachers saying to me, you know, you have great programs here at the Archway, could you develop a Native American program because we're afraid to teach anything beyond what we read in the book in our textbooks. We don't want to get anything wrong, which I thought was honorable of them. And then I finally decided three years after we were open that it was time to start a program. So, and if I was going to start a program about Natives, I was going to have it be about the Pawnee because their territory was large and we were right in the middle of it. And if I was going to start, and that would be my opportunity to meet a Pawnee person that Grandpa O'Brien talked about for so many years uh, before he passed away. For 11 years, I heard these stories. So it was my opportunity and, uh, to contact the Pawnee, and I thought, if I'm putting on a program about Pawnee history and this being their area, I want them to help tell their story. I don't want to read what some white man wrote in the late 1800s, early 1900s, I want the Pawnee, if they're willing, to help me put together a program about their homeland and, and them being in Nebraska. So that was how I made the first call down there to Oklahoma. I have to ask this question. Um, you mentioned Chief Many Blankets mm -hmm. and how he had saved um, your family or your the people there. Do you know how he did that or how that came about? Yes. Uh, well. So the O'Briens, who had been persecuted in Ireland, uh, settled along the Mormon Trail, which is along the Wood River, uh, and understood persecution well. So they interacted with the Mormons coming down, and for tribal people, uh, you know, any persecution going on there, they, they, they had none of that in their, in their system. I mean, it just wasn't part of who they were. So uh, the first settlers in central Nebraska had a very hard time living and making it because there was, there was no railroad yet. I mean, there was... The only market they had was coming down the trail. So um, many blankets would come out and camp along the Wood River just a half a mile from their place uh, where they had uh, squatted, squatters, right? And uh, right away they met um, this chief who was the head of this hunting band. These many blankets were his hides, uh, hunting hides, 
surely. And Edmund O'Brien was a wonderful teamster. He helped build four railroads in the United States. The Union Pacific came through and he helped build that one, the last one. But uh, So he, he knew how to handle horses, he knew how to handle mules, he was a teamster building those railroads. So many blankets taught him how to break horses in the Wood River using the water because there was no wood for a corral to wear them down. So. And then he started trading horses with many blankets. And so then he had horses to trade with people coming down the trail so they could get what they, it was really survival for them the, the first early years that they were out there. But became great friends, really great friends with uh, many blankets. They called them many blankets. I think someone in the tribe thinks now it was uh, many trophies, same thing, many blankets. Um, so in 1864, the O'Briens had four little boys, and three of them came down with a fever from a wagon train on the trail. And three of the four little boys had died from, they think it was diphtheria, they thought it was. And only one remained. He was three years old, and they put him in a gunny sack hammock outside, and it was March. And I don't know how a three-year-old would stay in a gunny sack hammock in March. Uh, Minnie Blankets was encamped a half a mile away and came over and uh, saw that there was, the, you know, they probably heard him a half a mile away. Took the little boy, knowing, knowing that the other three died already, and took him back to that encampment, this big encampment, hunting encampment of people. And uh, I, I said to Grandpa O'Brien when he told me that story, I said, Grandpa, I can't believe, I mean, nobody would do that today. Nobody would come and get the last remaining child of three that had already died from a fever and take it back to their encampment of 100 people who are out hunting. Um, and he said, that's just the way it was uh, back then. You know, people did those types of things for each other, especially when they were friends. And uh, so, once again, saved the life of the little boy, which is my husband's great-grandfather. Uh, so you know, for the opportunity for me to call the Pawnee and try, for me it was an opportunity to try to repay something for this family because uh, when Grandpa told the stories they were so real because he knew his grandparents very well and he knew the stories well and his dad was the one that lived. So uh, I took it very, it, it meant a great deal to me the day that I tried to call the Pawnee because uh, I, I want to be able to work with them. Yes. Great story. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. Um, so, Deb, um, why is the preservation of Pawnee seeds so important to the Pawnee? Besides having us, the seeds define us, um, it's really part of our ceremonial life. Uh, we have a lot of songs associated with that. It's it's part of what we eat when we have our our ceremonies. Um, we have uh, ceremonies where the men will will grab a handful of that corn and offer it to Atias, our um, divine father, and it. I I just can't picture our tribe and actually other tribes without corn. Um, it's just part of our, our, our lives. And um, so 
to have the corn and to be able to take care of it, it it's actually been um, um, very rewarding. Um, just a lot of work as well, you know, just to um, make sure that uh, we're not the only ones that love corn. Um, there's a lot of bugs <laughs> that tell us how healthy and beautiful our corn is. And, um, and uh, you know, so uh, to protect it, there's there's just a, a, a lot to do and a lot of checking. And, but it's, it's wonderful work. I mean, I feel like um, even in gardening, there's that element of dirt therapy that goes on with that and um, you know the corn is very sacred it's definitely alive and um, it's it's uh, it provided nutrition for hundreds and hundreds of years and why can't it help us now when we need it the most why do you say that why do you feel like you need it the most well if you've seen any figures on diabetes and overweight um, folks, I mean, we we weren't always like that. You know, we were we we had young men that traveled all the way to Colorado on foot, climbed those mountains, grabbed grabbed some of that knick knick and what have you for their tobacco and came back. Um, people were healthy and you know had a lot of endurance um, and we don't see that right now you know it's, it's just uh, sad that we have gotten to a point where what we consume is not good for our bodies and so why not go back to the food of our ancestors is it um just seems like there's this connection between corn and, and the land and your home. Is it? You talk about that, I guess. What? What? It, does it? Do you feel like it connects you to home somehow? It it really does, um, because we we want our corn back. Um, it's always been encouraging to know that. That shouldn't be mission impossible. Um, I mean, after all, Anasazi ruins revealed some clay pots where uh, they opened it up and it was full of corn and it was viable. You know, so that was encouraging to me to know that we could get some of our corn, no matter what shape it was in, and try to make it viable. Um, but um, it's, I don't know, the corn is just, um, I don't know, it's, it's a foundation. It's just part of uh, what we do or what we can carry on doing. So your project is, is interesting because it's a collaborative project between you, Deb, and the Pawnee Tribe, and Ronnie, Archway and, and many other Nebraskans who've gotten involved. So what's true? What is this project? Why is it important to non-Pawnee people? 
<laughs> I don't know how to answer that, Ronnie. Yeah. There's different, I think Deb can probably talk, speak on behalf of maybe other tribes and um, why this project would be important to other tribes. But I think for, for Nebraskans alone, You know, it it's always it's always bothered me that some of the latest books that have been written about Nebraska history, one I just picked up a couple of years ago, the first paragraph, which was probably an inch long, was about Native American history. And after that, it was the history of agriculture in Nebraska. And after that, that was it. Um, so I, you know, we really are missing the first thousand years uh, and we uh, including me growing up on farms in nebraska today think we understand what it's like to work with our land and to plant crops and to be successful with them and i can tell you from growing this corn for 16 years we have no idea what it, the true plants that are at home here do and can produce and thrive. Uh, we've, we've come up with a lot of ways to make a lot of chemicals, a lot of all kinds of things in machinery to make crops that were introduced to here successful. Uh, we have no idea what, what, I had no idea what crops or plants that are at home, crops that were developed here over hundreds and hundreds of years and consider this home. When they're planted at home, there's no comparison to what any other plant can do. Um, it's obvious that when you plant corn today, all the farmers, and I can say that because I grew up in that way, I can watch the fields around my home. I live out in the country and 14 days later, on the same hour of the same day, every single plant comes up. That's not what traditional plants are like. It's just like a native grass. The grasses will come up when the grasses are ready to come up. And some these native seeds, the when I first started working with them and put them in the ground, were jumping out of the ground in five days. Well, that's impossible, but they were home. You know, it was like they knew they were home and let, let's grow, let's get out of the ground. This did. And today's, today's agriculture is so mechanical, mm -hmm. you know, it's mechanized to the point of where you do this this week, you do that, that, and you look at your calendar with the Pawnee corn and, and other crops that there's, you go outside and it tells you what to do next. You have to listen to the plants. We've taken that away that relationship, there's a relationship to the soil and to the, the plants that grow that uh, by the end of every summer, the plants and know me as well as I know them. I didn't, I grew up in cornfields. I never had that experience before. There was just, just another cornfield, another corn plant. Uh, so I think there's a relationship that we we all need today. We all need to be taking care of Mother Earth, and we all need to understand those really our relationships to Mother Earth and all of the plants that are a part of it. And I've had to learn that. I've had to completely relearn what it's like to grow uh, uh, 
every every year getting a stronger and stronger connection to and to to the plants and and to the earth and i think for all of us in nebraska and all of us involved in agriculture in any way shape and form um you could have never told me that that this this that i could understand corn better i you know I'm sure there are scientists who think they understand corn very, very, very well. They don't understand corn like Deb Echohawk and I understand corn. They don't. And there, there's a, with the non-natives too, that that grow the hundreds of acres of corn that you see um, in Nebraska right now. What's a little bit frustrating to them is that is all kind of commercial corn and uh, in, industri- industry corn and but it's not the kind of corn that you would put on your table um, so they there's there's frustration growing with with non-natives um, in in that belief that I mean they, they grow all these hundreds and hundreds and acres but they can't feed their families and but this is the corn our corn is is very incredible um in the taste of it it's just phenomenal um i and i'm very happy about about that fact and how easy it is to uh to work with and prepare good quality meals the nutritional value is is through the charts um, versus the commercial corn that has been grown to be plumper, sweeter, uh, insect resistant, drought resistant, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of other uh, sustainable, what they call sustainable uh, practices, but it. Every time they manipulate the corn, it loses that nutritional value, you know. And and so what's beautiful about our corn is um, we can compare it to notes over a hundred years ago, and and realize that we have not lost any of that, um, and that our our corn. Um, Every one of them is is unique, um, and offers a, a different taste. And we're we're still in that process of even trying it out again. So we hope more people will enjoy it in the future. Um, had the Pawnees attempted to grow their corn in their lands in Oklahoma prior to this? That's kind of a, a crazy part of our history uh, uh, when we moved down to Oklahoma then we were allotted lands and so where we were in Nebraska a community close-knit community um, and where the growing was so regimented you know there was a distribution date um, there was different areas where you would have to grow it and what have you um, that part got dispersed in Oklahoma um, the allotment provided 
uh, acreage per family. It divided everybody up. Um, so to even get together to socialize, um, that was that was a hardship even to get your horse and wagon to go to town. You know, it was it it, it would take a, a lot of time. So that base, that community of farming together, working together, was completely lost. Um, in fact, when I started working with um, food people like Winona LaDuke, uh, she had introduced me to um, some Mennonites and um, uh, some, uh, what are those? Um, Oh gosh, I, Amish. I'm Amish. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and and to listen to their stories about how they work together and 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 produce it, it made me want to be an Amish wannabe. But <laughs> 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 you know? um, yeah, we we oh, it's it's such a powerful story to be able to. Um, how do we get together again? Um, when we were so dispersed, one of the things that also dispersed us further, besides living apart from each other, was they took our kids, put them in boarding schools. Um, they even took some of the uh, students to industrial schools um, where they learned the latest methods of farming with plows and all that good stuff. And, and then once they they had graduated from the industrial schools and went out to earn a living. They were not eligible to get any of that fancy farm equipment, and you know they were just uh, denied loans or uh, what have you. So even at that, they couldn't practice it. Uh, the farming. Uh, sure, there was a few families that that were able to to do some farming but they didn't keep it up they didn't pass it along and um, so that's a challenge now you know is is how do we create these gardens now um, so that it's replenished and healthy and we're working on that we have 19 gardens this year in in Oklahoma and, and we're real happy about that. Deb Echohawk is the keeper of the seeds for the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. She shares a passion for growing sacred Pawnee corn with Ronnie O'Brien, the former manager of the Great Platte River Road Archway Monument in Kearney, Nebraska. Listen to part two of their interview to find out how they launched the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project. Thank you for joining us on Reconciliation Rising a project dedicated to natives and non-natives confronting our past and reimagining our future. If you'd like to learn more about our efforts, please check out our website at reconciliationrising.org. Listen to part two of the interview on reconciliationrising.org. We'd like to thank Reconciliation Rising project members Kevin Aberesk and Margaret Jacobs for allowing us to share this interview here. Find all of our Short Great Plains talks and interviews as videos and podcasts at go.unl.edu slash gplectures.